At the end of the day, they're using a lot of the same tools that your IT admins are going to use, right? And they're using the same accounts. And that's why I like, this might not be a fair comparison, but typically when I hear people talking about attacks and they're saying, oh, you know, the attackers always create new accounts. You know, I've done over a thousand investigations over the course of probably 13 years doing incident response. But what I found there is in almost every single case, the attacker has used an existing account to accomplish what they need. They might create some accounts here or there, but I don't see that as a typical playbook. It, it certainly happens, but their goal is to find an existing account because they can just blend in. Right? And that's all they need to do. Like they're literally just using the the systems against the, the company to accomplish their goal. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Doobie. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HIP Podcast. Speaking of the HIP Conference, registration is now open for this year's HIP Global Event. Join us at the Microsoft Conference Center in New York City, August 23rd and 24th, and hear from AD and identity security experts, including Microsoft Vice President of Identity Security, Alex Weinert, and former CAA Director and Semperis Strategic Advisor, General David Petraeus. You can learn more and register for HIP Global at the link in our podcast description. As organizations grapple with building, testing, and maintaining their incident response policies, processes, and teams, an important aspect that's often not well understood is cyber insurance. And even if you think you understand it, your knowledge may be out of date because the industry itself is evolving and maturing as it encounters new claims from incidents every day. My guest today is Jason Rebels. Jason is Chief Information Security Officer for Corvus Insurance, which specializes in our topic. He's also known as the Teach Me Cyber Guy, with his own Teach Me Cyber YouTube channel that focuses on the ins and outs of cybersecurity. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for having me, Sean. You know, before we dive into the cyber insurance topic, and we've discovered we have a lot to talk about there, first, um, why don't you tell us a little about your whole Teach Me Cyber mission? Uh, you have a YouTube channel, and I know you uh, speak independently on it uh, about um, cybersecurity education. Yeah, it, it's really the culmination of, of my career. You know, I, I grew up in incident response and I found myself in the position where I was describing very technical things to less technical audiences. Uh, and I literally just one day reached a point where I was reading some articles online and I realized like no one is going to understand this. You know, it's going, you're, you're, <laughs> these companies are basically writing towards a very small portion of an audience that is interested in cybersecurity. And so, you know, I felt that I had a superpower of being able to translate these technical topics into something that somebody who is less technical can understand. Uh, and so I just started it and I just started testing. I started off on LinkedIn, just posting every day of just various security topics. And that naturally morphed into uh, a YouTube channel and have uh, have been doing it ever since. 
Well, I know I have friends that, you know, they're, they themselves or their, their children are, are looking to get into cybersecurity. And I, I tell them about the, the industry's uh, negative unemployment rate. <laughs> and that there are many ways to learn, but this looks like this is another great aspect of you got almost 50 videos out there. So that's, that's really great. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm a fan of the, the drip uh, methodology of knowledge uh, and learning is just, you know, a steady supply over time and in, in small bites uh, will, will resonate a little bit more than just trying to go in for the PhD right off the bat. <laughs> right. And, and it'll stick a little bit longer too. Exactly. So for the topic of cyber insurance, let's start from the beginning. And and by the beginning, I'm sort of thinking of uh, I, the NIST cybersecurity framework, the attack framework, before, during, and after an attack. Mm-hmm. Um, so beforehand, let's talk about the basics. Like what, what does it take to even get cyber insurance? What level of what I would call security maturity are you likely to need before you can even get insurance? Yeah, it's going to be the classic security answer of it depends, right? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's accurate because, you know, I think as everyone uh, who, who knows security uh, would say, you know, your, your requirements for security are going to change depending on a lot of factors, you know, your industry, the size of your organization, your security budget. And so, you know, I think if you look at over, overall at cyber insurance, there is a very, um, it's a very disparate uh, way of trying to understand the risk, but there is some, some semblance of, uh, of logic to the madness. So, you know, when we look at things like the SMB uh, space, you know, small businesses, we're not going to expect that you're going to have a million dollar budget for security. And so we're not expecting the Rolls Royce of, uh, of security in your organization. Mm-hmm. But what I do find is that regardless of the size of your organization or the industry, there's really a few key technologies that uh, you're going to find any cyber insurance carrier looking at. And so that comes down to number one, multi-factor authentication. Are you securing your access to email and any remote access into your environment with MFA? Number two is endpoint detection and response, right? Really advanced endpoint security. Uh, and you know the reason for that is it's effective at identifying malware, blocking malware. Not perfect, but it's effective in helping just identify issues early on, uh, and can help stem the the overall severity or the impact of an incident. And then uh, third, it comes down to uh, the the ransomware impact. And so we're looking at backups. Do you have robust, secure? and resilient backups in your environment. Uh, and when you can get those right, you're typically positioning yourself fairly well. And there's always some nuance and uh, you know a different color that has to be added there, but that really tends to be uh, a lot of the core of what cyber insurance is looking for. Right, so it isn't, you know, you don't expect a small business to be ISO 27001 compliant, but you expect them to have these security basics in place. Exactly. And a good example of this, you know, when we look at email security, right, you know, this is one I didn't mention before, but when we're looking at that, you know, your SMB uh, customer uh, or, you know, SMB company, they might just have the the built-in email security that a Google or a Microsoft is going to provide. Uh, And in some cases, that's good enough, right? Especially if they're paying for an advanced license and get some of the advanced features. But 
as you start to mature as a company, there's just an expectation that, hey, uh, you know, you have a larger attack footprint. And so there's an expectation that you're going to be able to invest more dollars into trying to protect that. And so you might look to see, do they have more advanced and uh, email security features, you know, link scanning, attachment scanning, things of that nature. And so that's how things are going to change as your revenue as a company comes uh, increases. There are just going to be more requirements that get added into that. So what would you then, and maybe this is a, uh, an extension of my previous question, what do applicants often get wrong when they're you know, applying for insurance? So I, I think one of the things is that you know, they think it's a, a one-way street of information, right? Where, hey, you know, we can't ask questions because we don't want to draw attention. Uh, and so I think that's the, the, the most important thing is you have to look at cyber insurance as a partner. And, you know, one of the worst things you can do is just go in, fill out the questionnaire. And, you know, if you're confused by a question or, you know, there's some some context that you want to add, the worst thing you can do is not say it or not ask the question. Right. And so I love when I see uh, somebody who's looking at insurance, at buying insurance, coming in and saying, hey, I want to give you more context on what we're doing. Right. And so what you'll find is that a lot of cyber insurance applications are yes, no questions. And anyone that has done security knows that a lot of security is not just a yes, no question. You know, there's just certain things that you want to be able to explain. And so I always tell people, use the, the space in the margin on these applications, add in that additional flavor. And so, you know, the point of this is you can go to cyber insurance and have a conversation, ask for clarification. Hey, what do you mean by this question? Uh, because I always just find that there's a lot of confusion that comes into place where, you know, people just aren't on the same page of what's being asked and what's expected of me for that response. Uh, that resonates so strongly because I've, I have answered a lot of security questionnaires for <laughs> prospects and for customers. And, you know, they're, <clears throat> they're almost all always Boolean, yes or no. Mm -hmm. You know, do you have hard disk encryption? Mm -hmm. Um Yes-ish, <laughs> you know, there, yeah, but you're right, you know, and then you, you try to give more context to say, because the reality is, and you and I understand this, is, look, so there is a particular area that may not be, due to whatever its nature, may not be as secured, but the risk associated with it because of X, Y, and C is exceedingly low, mm -hmm. you know, so not everybody has all the money for everything all the time. So what you're saying essentially is give the reviewer context so they can better understand it. Don't just say yes. And, and then if something bad happens, they don't understand, they have no context. Exactly. And to your point, right, you know, risk is different for every organization. So, you know, just, uh, a, the absence of a control in one company might be more devastating than that same control missing in another. Right. But for the underwriters that are looking at these files, they may not have that context to understand why. And so it's not just this thing where, you know, oh, you don't have it. Great. Like you're, you're done sort of thing. There is always an opportunity for a conversation to happen to get that context there. And I would say, you know, with that, it's not a search for perfection. Right. Like this is the goal is not to get to 100 percent on the, the cyber insurance application test. Right. The, I, what I typically find is the people who come in the strongest saying 
yeah, we have all the controls. We're not going to get hacked. We're fine. Like those are the ones that scare me the most because there's just a misalignment to the reality of cybersecurity that, you know, your controls will fail. A, an attacker will find a way to bypass them. And it might not be your fault. And maybe it is your fault. It doesn't really matter to me, right? The point of cyber insurance is to address the the large scale issues that will happen when a cyber event happens, right? It's somebody got into our systems and they just blew it up. Right. And so we want you to be able to handle the day to day things up. Oh, we had an alert on our system, got to investigate. But cyber insurance exists because we understand that you're not going to bat a thousand percent here. But how can we just give you that backstop so that if something does fail and some, you know, some mistakes happen along the way that you have that financial backstop to get back to where you were before? When you're in an incident, Time is of the essence, but I think people don't realize or prepare for how long a cyber insurance company may require and how that impacts the response timeline. So what is a typical timeline for, for cyber insurance during incident response or what is the what typically happens? How might the insurance company's requirement impact the speed of the recovery effort? Yeah, so this really comes down to understanding your insurance policy, right? So, you know, as uh, for any CISO, typically what I find is that uh, they, and even even if it's just an IT expert, right? It's anyone who's on the hook for securing the uh, the organization right. or responsible for um, you know the IT operations. Typically, their role in cyber insurance is fill out the application, and then that's it. Right. And so the, the first step here is understand what's required of your cyber insurance carrier, because some cyber insurance policies will mandate that you use their vendors to do the incident response engagement. Right. Uh, and so I've seen this before where a, uh, somebody didn't know that. Uh, and I, I've been, I, you know, having done IR in the past, I've been a victim of this as a service provider where we start doing an IR and it turns out that, you know, we weren't on, on whatever the list was and we had to stand down. Right? Mm. And so that can be disruptive because now you, you start, you have to stop, and then you're starting with somebody else. So, you know, if you understand what the rules of engagement are beforehand, it makes for an easier response process. Now, with that, uh, you know, there are certain things that help just move everything along. Right. And I think there's there can sometimes be this perception that, oh, we have to go and we have to get approval from our insurance carrier to proceed. Right. And so when the system works the way it's intended, you're notifying your insurance carrier, hey, I got hacked. There's a situation on the ground. You know, how can I go about doing this? Right. And at that point, they can get you introduced to different vendors. Right. An incident response vendor, privacy counsel to help you, you know, uh, understand what are your legal obligations or your legal risks. If you need help with a ransom negotiation. Right. They can pull people in there. And so what I find is that it actually helps speed up the recovery process or the, the response process because these insurance carriers, like we're dealing with this every single day. We know all the key players. And so we can really help expedite the response effort. Uh, typically what I see is that uh, come Monday, you know, if, if the incident happened on Monday, sometimes what will happen is that organization will try to respond to it themselves. 
you know, see, oh, should we do the investigation? You know, how do we try to respond to this? And then come Friday, it just becomes an inbound Friday. That's what I used to call it when I was doing incident response. <laughs> and suddenly, like, everybody's like, oh, the weekend's here. I think I need help with responding to this. And then they'll call their insurance carrier and say, hey, you know, we have an issue. You know, what can we do? And that's when we'll pull in all the right people. And so I would say I see more time lost with, uh, with organizations that aren't familiar with the incident response process itself. And why should they be like, hopefully they're only going through this once every, you know, uh, you know, century in a perfect world. But, you know, it's acknowledge that, hey, I'm not an incident response expert as a company. My insurance carrier knows all the key players. I can work with them right off the bat and then just get straight to uh, uh, straight to responding. And in a perfect world, you know, you can get this done in a matter of hours. Right. There's no slowdown. It's just action right away. I have. Uh, I, I know our people have experienced that Happy Friday yeah. situation before. It's like what? Um, Many a weekend have been ruined in incident response. Oh, so what you're saying is essentially is your carrier can assist you with all of these aspects because there are many threads that are going on simultaneously. There's you know the actual responders. There's the organization. There's the the timeline uh, tracking, there's the negotiations, there's the, there's the th many threads. And what you're saying is that your insurance company can actually help you with those rather than hinder you. Exactly. And that one of the first calls that you're having is with somebody on the claims team and they'll go through and say, okay, this is, this is your policy. This is what's covered. You know, we're going to get you an incident response firm, somebody who can do forensics. We're going to get you privacy counsel. Uh, and it really just helps understand what are the pieces on the incident response field that I have at my disposal and, you know, how do I move those around? Like it really becomes somebody that can facilitate the resolution of this, you know, hopefully a once in a career type uh, issue here uh, of having a, an incident. Well, and I, I would, I will flip that on its side and say, when you're, when you as an organization, not you, Jason, but when, <laughs> when the listener is, an is, is looking at cyber, ins cyber insurance carriers, those are the questions to be asking them. Will you help us with this? Will you help us with that? Do we have resources for all of these things or must we figure it out ourselves? Exactly. And that's part of the incident response planning, right? You know, it's in, in the incident response plans that I write, I have the contact information for my insurance carrier. Right? And I know all of the different forensics firms that I have available to me. I know all of the different privacy uh, counsel firms that are available for me. And so you're just planning ahead to understand what are the levers that I have to pull so I can be as efficient as possible in that response process. Does the insurance company get directly involved in threat actor negotiations or do they leave it to a third party because it, you know, that's directly impacts their bottom line, what the size of the claim is. Yeah. It's, it's always through a third party. You know, they, I think there's a, a misconception where, you know, cyber insurance is, is uniquely tied into every facet of the response process. And it's just not the, the case, you know, we're here to under, to help you understand what uh, your coverage is. We're here to help get you the right people for the right job uh, and help facilitate that through and through. Um, and so, you know, what you find is, and this is, I'll put my instant response hat back on here where I was a service provider. You know, once that introduction was made, it was go time. And it was, you know, as an instant response provider, you are working directly with that client who was hacked and working in their best interest to get things moving along. And so cyber insurance, 
I almost look at it as they're kind of sitting above the fold uh, and helping be that uh, that financial backstop and just helping the, the business understand, you know, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, yep, you know, that's going to be covered. But if you go down this route, that may not be covered. Right. And it's just it's the same thing with a, with car insurance. Right. You know, I, I'll say this right for me. Right. I bought car insurance. I haven't looked at that uh, probably since I bought it, you know, years and years and years ago. I couldn't tell you what, what was covered offhand. Right. And so that's on me. If I get into a, a, a car accident tomorrow, I'm going to be asking these questions of like, oh, gee, what am I on the hook for? Right. Uh, you know, am I allowed to get a rental car? Is am I getting reimbursed? Like, what? It, there's a lot of confusion that's happen that happens there in the instant response cycle, just like with a car accident. So, like, if you can get ahead of that, understand what's there, what's available to you, it just it just makes it such a a smoother process. And with that car, I'm there. I I, I bought insurance to get the value of my car reimbursed. I'm not going to go from like a a Ford Focus to buying a Ferrari. And I think like that's where a lot of the, the confusion comes in place with with cyber insurance. I this. I had that analogy resonating with me as well. I, I live in North Texas. And so since we've just been through the spring, it's spring is coming. It means it's time for a new roof. Mm. Uh, we had a uh, ping pong ball sized hail uh, about six weeks ago here. So that means a new roof, new gutters. Mm. And this will be our fourth roof in a little less than 20 years or about 20 years. Oh my gosh. So we don't really have to worry about 30 year roofs in, in, in North Texas, but, <laughs> but it's this, but, but, to your point or what we're talking about, you know, our, my insurance provider is like, great, you know, here's who we recommend. Here are the things here's, you know, a well set up insurance provider is designed to make it easier for you, not mm -hmm. harder for you. Exactly. And you might be an expert on roofing now having had to replace your roof that many times. But, you know, for me, like I've, I've only ever had to replace a roof once and I, I, you know, I didn't have to go through insurance for that, but it was, that was a scenario where like, I don't know the first thing about roofing, nor do I care to learn more about roofing, right? And so it's just, I am looking for somebody that knows that world. And, you know, I'm looking for somebody that doesn't have, uh, uh, you know, they they don't necessarily like have a bias against me, right? And like for cyber insurance in particular, like you are never going to find somebody who has an invested interest as much of a cyber insurance carrier in your situation right and so i think this is like a lot of people tried to alienate cyber insurance oh like you know they're just there to try to you know cut the the costs and everything like that and it's like no no we're here to help advise you on all of the things that we have seen go very well and all the things that we've seen go very badly and that end result is what is the most effective response process possible not what the most cost effective what is the most effective period and that's like that's that's not necessarily what a policyholder might want to hear, right? Because I, I go back to my recovery days. You know, a lot of people they're saying, "Well, we have to get. We the only way we can get back up and running is to completely rebuild our environment." And so, you know, I would pause there. And this is when I was a service provider, not as an, a cyber insurance uh, carrier. And I would say, "Yeah, you could go down that way, but you're going to be spending two million dollars. You're going to extend your outage by, you know, maybe four to six weeks, uh, or." We could go and get you back up and running in a couple of days, and you'll be, you know, good to go. And so it's it, that's the type of conversations that happen where it's like this is not about, you know, you don't have to go again the Cadillac version here. How do you get back up and running in the most efficient manner possible? Right, and and 
have had the opportunity to talk to various factors uh, in incident response teams. And what I'm hearing more and more is, look, we've been involved in a lot of these. You've not been involved in, hopefully, any of these. So listen to listen to our advice mm-hmm. uh, rather than trying to figure it out yourself. Exactly. You don't have to go at it alone. Um, recognizing that there's a range in this, about how long does it take for a claim to be approved and reimbursed? So it's really going to be dependent on on every uh, every engagement. You know, some of them are pretty straightforward, and so as these uh, as the invoices come in, insurance carriers can turn that around fairly quickly. Sometimes they have to wait to understand more of the scenario. So it's it's purely dependent on uh, on the specifics of each uh, engagement. Okay, okay. So to talk, turn this to a little bit more of the identity aspect of this, because. Certainly, and anyone that's heard me talk about this, and I, I love to quote um, Alex Weinert, Microsoft. He's the vice president for Microsoft Identity Security, saying that more often than not, ransomware attacks are the second phase of a of a, of a campaign, and the first ca- the first phase is an identity compromise. Mm-hmm. So about identity and in and how it relates to ransomware. I know you've been you've been doing some thinking on that recently. Yeah, it, it's really a, a fascinating change in in ransomware. And you know, this is something uh, I was going to say. I had the fortune of of seeing ransomware evolve, but I, I don't think it was much of a fortune. It was uh, <laughs> it was painful. But you know, I've seen ransomware where it's gone from single system encryption to what I always call the enterprise encryption. So that's where you know they're getting in and they're just encrypting every single system in your environment. Uh, and those were the days where you know, the first group to do this was this group called SamSam. Uh, and they, they'd get in, they did typically to encrypt all the servers, and then it was a $50,000 ransom. And I remember at that time when a typical ransom was about like four or $5,000, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh man, $50,000, that's crazy. And mm. now I'm like, wishing we could go back there because now you're dealing with million dollar ransoms, uh, you know, average ransom demands, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that are actually getting paid out. And so, you know, what you what I found in this evolution was it started where these these ransomware groups were doing it all themselves. And so they would, you know, either find they love to brute force RDP, you know, find a weak username and password combination. Hammer uh, exactly. You know, you'd see some of the phishing emails come in. And so that was the the most popular way. And they would do this all themselves. But then once ransomware started taking off, it became an industry. And you started specialization take hold. And what happened there was you had this emergence of identity uh, access brokers, Mm -hmm. right? And so these access brokers existed to try to figure out, you know, who could I work with to try to get access into these companies, whether that is through, you know, the methods we just talked about, or, you know, throw in some vulnerabilities into the mix as well. But it would figure out how do we get access into that environment? And then how do we sell that to another group, like a ransomware actor, so that they can just cut that beginning out and just focus on moving around the environment. And so I don't know who had this quote, but I I love it. Uh, where it's, you know, hackers don't hack in, uh, they log in, right? And I think yep. this is a scenario where 
Yeah, you know what? There's hacking is going to involve all these different things, but at the end of uh, end of the day, the attackers are just trying to find the account in the environment that is going to give them the most possible access that they can get, right? And typically domain administrator, uh, you know, any type of administrative cre- uh, credentials here, that's what they're going for. And that is what is enabling them to conduct their mission, whether that's going to be stealing data, encrypting uh, systems and data, or both of them. Uh, and that's it. And so really like that identity is the most important thing. It's like all things lead back to the identity uh, in, in these types of attacks. And I think you know, you you take that forward. It's just that is going to be the future of attacks. It's been the history, and it's certainly going to be continue to be in the future. Yeah, it it certainly. You know, when I when I look through SC Magazine reports, uh, or you know wherever Bleeping Computer when they're talking about talking about incidents mm-hmm. and companies being hit, and you're looking, they don't they rarely say the words Active Directory directly but they do hint around it and they talk about, you know, Mm -hmm. they may talk about domain controllers. They may talk about domain access or they talk about network shares or they're, they're, they're identity. They're going through identity because that's the, that's the easiest route to get to what they want to get to. Well, exactly. Right. And I, I used to tell people when I was doing incident response was like, you know, by, by the end of these engagements, the attacker is going to know your environment better than you do. Right. Because at the end of the day, they're using a lot of the same tools that your IT admins are going to use. Right. And they're using the same accounts. And that's why, like, this might not be a fair comparison, but typically when I hear people talking about attacks and they're saying, oh, you know, the attackers always create new accounts. You know, I've done over a thousand investigations over the course of probably 13 years doing incident response. But what I found there is in almost every single case, the attacker has used an existing account to accomplish what they need. They might create some accounts here or there, but I don't see that as a typical playbook. It, it certainly happens, but their goal is to find an existing account because they can just blend in, right? And that's all they need to do. Like they're literally just using the the systems against the the company to accomplish their goal. If you look at and always refocus on the attacker's goals. Their goals aren't necessarily to use some new and novel technique that'll get them publicity in Bleeping Computer or CISA or wherever. Their goal is to exfiltrate the data. Uh, and Well, that's not their goal. Their goal is to make as much money in as short a period of time as possible. And you can extrapolate or in- interpolate, if I go backwards, uh, uh, you can, you can, all of their actions, also just about from that, from that process if you remove morality from it exactly yeah and i think it's it's just very interesting to me because uh you know i've done investigations into various threat actors and if you understand the motivations of the the threat groups it it just helps you understand what the impact is right you know when i was doing investigations into uh, nation state threats you know their goal was to break in steal that data for their own purposes for their country right and so you know you go back to uh, to chinese uh, apt threat actors you could map the targets based on china's five-year plan like all the industries that they said were important for them for the next five years well magically those were the companies and the you know the industries that were getting hit in these nation state uh, attacks you know i think with ransomware right to your point it's how do i get to profit as quickly as possible 
right? And so that's where you can see the iterations they're doing and, and how they're experimenting with how do we get more leverage? You know, as uh, we saw in, with the cyber insurance side, when we started mandating secure backups, we, we saw a, a 36% decline in the number of ransoms that were paid, right? And so for the threat actors, when they're starting to see, hey, encryption is no longer working in of itself, we have to adapt. And so you start seeing a spike in data theft included in this, right? So it's another leverage point for it. And so it's just, it's this constant iteration, but the motive doesn't change. It's, I want to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible uh, and try to st- evade law enforcement as long as possible with that. Right. And you're, you're right. Everything, everything comes back from that. So the attacking of critical infrastructure, because they'll get paid faster. There's, there's going to be less ransom negotiations because they have to be up faster. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it, it all comes back from that. Well, th- this was great, Jason. I, I really appreciate the insight that you provide into the cyber insurance world and their expectations and how a good cyber insurance provider can actually assist you in that most difficult, what I call the the most stressful time of an IT pro's career, mm-hmm. uh, incident response. Thanks, thanks very much for your time and your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.